You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Uh, well, thank you, musicians, for leading us in that. Uh, this is uh, our next to last week uh, in our sermon series on Matthew 11 through 13, a sermon series entitled, Are You the One? Taking Jesus, or the question of John the Baptist's disciples, they come to Jesus at the beginning of John 11 and ask, hey, look, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? And we've considered uh, in these last several weeks how Jesus is the one. Uh, that they have and we have been waiting for. So this morning, I want to consider uh, the one who waits patiently. So turn to Matthew 13. The one who waits patiently. Uh, I put the passage down in the bulletin as Matthew 13, 24 to 43. We're, we're actually going to look through verse 52. Uh, this week and next week, we'll be in the same passage. There are, there are a couple big themes here, um, but they're kind of mixed up in there. Usually we kind of take the verses and work right through them in order. We're going to jump around a little bit this week and next week to try to isolate these two big themes and issues that I want us to think about. So we'll consider the passage as a whole, and then uh, we'll get on to considering what it is we need to see here this morning. So, John, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. This is God's word. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, well, then the weeds came up, or then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Well, how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter, utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Uh, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. 
the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Father, I I pray now you'd help us as we consider your word. Father, we see in this passage both the glorious patience and kindness of the Savior and also the severity and certainty of a coming judgment. So we want to be rightly sobered and rightly rejoicing. So I pray that you would guide our minds and our hearts as we look now at your word, that your spirit would lead and direct us, speak to us, opening eyes, opening ears, softening hearts to receive the truth and indeed the person of Jesus now. I pray in his name, amen. Jesus begins here in verse 24 telling a parable. We saw last week how a parable is a special kind of story. It's not merely to entertain. It's a story with a message, but the message is subtle. It's, it's below the surface. It, it invites further thought, rereading, re-reflecting on what the message of that parable, that story is. And we see later in verse 35 in this chapter that Jesus, with, with the big crowds at least, is doing almost nothing but telling them these kind of parables, these kind of stories. Stories that reward careful thought and attention. And we see through this chapter in chapter 13 that almost everyone opens by, by comparing something to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of of heaven. That deserves some explanation. We need to think about what that means. We could easily go all of 2020 and never have the kingdom of heaven come up in one of our conversations. But it, here it's the main thing Jesus wants to talk about. And, and as he does so, he is drawing on a story that he and all of his listeners share. He's speaking into a story that they understand. 
a couple of years ago, a historian, a Jewish historian named Yuval Noah Harari wrote a book called Sapiens. I think I might have mentioned it to you in here before. Uh, Sapiens is a, a long and generalized history of mankind going back thousands of years. and It uh, sold something like 10 million copies, translated into 20 languages, this sort of thing. Widely read, and uh, on the, uh, the heels of the success of that, Harari wrote another book called uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st century. Lessons that we need to learn and understand as we move into this new century. And so I saw that book at the library and I grabbed it and I knew I wasn't going to have time to read the whole book, but I was, went through the table of contents because I was curious, well, what are, these, what are these lessons that he's offering to the world that we need to grasp? And there's a number of interesting themes. But, but the next to last chapter, and easily the longest chapter, is a chapter entitled Meaning. Meaning. That's an issue we're all concerned about. What do our lives mean? What gives them significance? The title of the chapter is Meaning, and the subtitle is Your Life is Not a Story. Your Life is Not a Story. Well, that caught my attention right away. You know, the fact that he feels like he needs to give this lesson shows that we tend to think of our lives in the context of a story. And, and why wouldn't we? Stories have a beginning and a middle and an end. They start in some place with some certain characters and there's some kind of conflict, some kind of drama, some kind of issue that rises and eventually it's resolved and the story has an ending, sometimes happy, sometimes tragic. That's the way stories work. And of course, if we think about it, that's the way a life works. It has a beginning and a certain time and place and context with characters. Life goes on, trouble and difficulty comes, rising conflict and tension that we hope and expect will someday be resolved and, and then the story of that life will end and hopefully it's a happy ending and not a, not a tragic one. No real surprise that we think of our lives as a story. I mean, we, we instinctively acknowledge this when, when we talk about someone who we say loves drama, right? That's the favorite people in your life, aren't they? The people that love drama. But what are we really saying? They're getting bored or dissatisfied in their story, so they're trying to write a new one. It almost always involves bringing conflict, right? I'm trying to change the story. And it frustrates us because we've, we don't want our story changed, at least not by their conflict or to meet their needs. We subconsciously but inevitably think of our lives as a kind of story. And our biggest concern is, how does the story end? Happy? When we think the ending of our story is happy, we're happy. We're encouraged. We're hopeful. We're joyful. But when we start to suspect that the ending is going to be sad, tragic, disappointing, we get discouraged, depressed. We despair. How's the story going to end? Well, Harari is saying in this book, 21 Lessons, it's just not true that your life is a story. He says it's just not the case. He, he says, you know, we see our life as a story. He says it's, like a, it's kind of a psychological crutch. We're trying to give our lives some kind of meaning, he says. And even more importantly for him, his big concern is, as a, as a secular Jew, he's concerned with the Orthodox Jewish view and certainly the Christian view that, that all of the world is part of 
a big story. God's big story. He says, if you want to have meaning in your life, you just have to decide what gives your life meaning and say, that's what gives my life meaning. But there's no real story. That's a big problem, though. That really doesn't work. First of all, if, if I'm going to invent what gives my life meaning, I've invented what gives my life meaning. The story I'm writing is, by definition, a fiction. I've simply created it and decided it for myself. Our lives are a story. And more importantly, they are part of a bigger story. And if I lose sight of the fact that, that my life is part of a bigger story, I start to lose a sense of significance, a sense of meaning, a sense of importance. The story of my life needs to be placed in God's bigger story. When Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, which he does all the time, he's speaking into a story that he and his listeners all understand themselves to be living in. We don't assume that today. If you go to the mall and start asking people about the big story of the world, you're going to get a lot of people who come up with something very different than God is doing something through his son, Jesus Christ, that started in the garden that ends when Jesus returns. But in Jesus' day, in his context, all of his fellow Jewish people believe that. God has a story. He's working. We're part of it. And, how and when is it going to end? It started in the garden. Adam and Eve overthrow God's good rule. We don't want to submit to him. We don't want him to be king. We want to write our own story. And so they go their own way with tragic consequences that they regret and we regret down to this day. In Genesis chapter 12, the story takes a new shift. God comes to Abraham, says, leave your land and go to this place. I'm going to make you into a great nation. New chapter in this story. I'm going to accomplish my purposes. I started with Adam and Eve, but now, Abraham, I'm going to do it with you and your descendants, which, as you know, become the people of Israel. And God writes out a great story for them, but they rebel too. They chase other gods. They don't keep covenant. They serve idols. They want to rule themselves. They rewrite the story with tragic consequences for them and for their children that follow. And what happens? They're carried off in judgment. They're exiled. Things fall apart. And that's, in essence, where God's people find themselves in Jesus' day. We know there's a story. We know God is going to send a king, a descendant of David, a, a Messiah, an anointed one who's going to come and save us and restore our fortunes, reestablish God's rule. They know that's coming. They have expectations of how it's supposed to go, how it will be resolved, how the ending will play out, and what their place will be in it. Jesus, Jesus knows this story too. But he's going to reframe their understanding of how this big story plays out. Let's see a few things here. First of all, God's story starts humbly and moves slowly. God's story, the story of the world, starts humbly and moves slowly. Think about when God's king, God's Messiah, comes. How does he come? Not in the way they would expect. He comes as a baby. Small, feeble, 
needy and dependent. Not in a palace, but in a manger and a stable. God's kingdom comes humbly. You, th- you see some of the juxtaposition of this in Luke chapter 2, right? You've got shepherds, lowly shepherds in a field, and an angel comes to them and go see this baby. Go see this Savior, right? You'll find him lying in a manger. I don't get it. This Savior King is lying in a manger, right? It's this, this humble beginning. And then, of course, the, the heavens open and there's a whole throng, a multitude of angels in great glory and power. Glory to God in the highest. In peace, goodwill to men. This heavenly throng proclaims to you know, humble shepherds on a hillside. God's story starts humbly. We see this in verses 31 to 33 back here in Matthew. Verse 31, he put a parable before them. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Mustard seed is incredibly tiny. The tiniest seed they knew is proverbial for being, if you're going to think of something small, you're talking like a mustard seed. Really small, really tiny, not seemingly worth a whole lot, but full of potential. It starts small. In fact, that, that mustard seed will grow and become, not, not a giant tree, but compared to other garden plants, a tree 10 to 12 feet tall, big enough that birds can come and nest in it, but it starts as a tiny seed. Or, he says in the next verse, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. God's kingdom comes, and it comes subtly, and leaven was, they didn't have powder. They'd take a piece of old dough that's fermented and put it in and mix it in. And that, that leavening effect, that yeasting effect, would eventually permeate through the entire loaf and cause it to rise. That's not a fast process. It takes time. It's inauspicious and humble. But it's working. It's growing. It's accomplishing its purposes. God's story starts humbly, and it moves Slowly. Think about why that's important for us in a minute. Secondly, God's story waits patiently. Look back at verse 24. The parable is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while he's sleeping, his enemy comes and sows weeds. Now, I don't know how often that happened. There are other cases in the ancient world of this happening. And what would happen, the weed is almost certainly a weed called darnel uh, that would get thrown in the seeds, of course, just getting cast in the field. And, and when the wheat comes up and, and this weed, this darnel comes up, they look basically identical. You can't tell which is which. They're both there filling the field. You have to wait till they grow nearly to their full height. And as they begin to produce their grains, well, then the difference becomes obvious. But by that point, the roots are so intertwined with each other to pull the weeds you're liable to pull the weed as well. And so, in the parable here, the wheat we see, looking at verse 36, the disciples ask for an explanation. He says, uh, verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field's the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
When Jesus explains this story, he says, look, this, this is what's happening here. This is what's going on. The Son of Man is sowing seed into the world. And in the world, there are two kinds of people. There are sons of the kingdom, sons of God, who put their trust and hope in him. And then there's the sons of the evil one that the enemy has sown in among them. They're not easy to tell apart sometimes. They're both here. They're both part of the world. And in the parable, of course, the, the servants, the workers, want to rush out quickly and try to pull all the weeds up. And, and the owner says, no, 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 slow down. That'll wait. That'll wait. We're going to let them grow together. He's patient. He doesn't want weeds in his field. No farmer wants weeds, you know, siphoning off nutrients and moisture and all the things that the field needs. But he's patient and he's going to wait. So in the context of the parable, God is, God is not eager to judge and punish. He's not eager to judge quickly. When we finish here in Matthew, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, we're going to spend a few weeks in 2 Peter chapter 1. But, but put a marker here and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 quickly. 2 Peter 3, we looked at this chapter earlier, but in verse 4, scoffers in the last days will say, where is the promise of his coming? When is God, when is the Savior coming again? The scoffers ask. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, this is 2 Peter 3, 4, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, you keep saying judgment's coming. But ever since the beginning, it hasn't happened. Prophets have been saying that forever. Where's the judgment coming? I don't think it's coming. Verse 5, Peter says, but they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water, through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. He says, yeah, but they, they, they forget, deliberately forget. Judgments come before. Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Judgment has come on the world. God has destroyed the world through a flood. And, verse 7, by that same word that sent the flood, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is that they forget judgment has happened before. It will happen again. There's coming another day. But, verse 8, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We get impatient. He says, is, is it not a, does it feel like a long time to God? Because, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's story waits patiently because God himself is loving and patient. He's giving people, sinful people that deserve judgment, people like me and you, time to repent. He's not eager to judge. He is patient he takes the long view. 
I was reading some time ago the biography of Frederick Law Olmsted, the, the great um, uh, landscape designer of the 19th century, designed Central Park and many other famous places. And uh, one of the things that, that Olmsted said that I thought was remarkable, he said as, as he's designing a landscape environment, hills, bushes, trees, many things that take time to grow. He said, I don't care what anybody thinks for the first 80 years. Because if I'm concerned what people think tomorrow, I'm going to put in things that look good right now. He says, I don't care what people think for the first 80 years. If, I need, if this place needs slow-growing oaks that take 80 years to mature, I'll plant little oak seedlings and I'll wait for the judgment of the next century, which will be after his life is over. Patience. I'm going to do it the right way. God is patient. We might say, oh no, judgment should come now, but you should, you should remove the wicked, you should destroy them and punish them right now. No, God's been patient with me and you. And he's patient with them. He's giving them time to repent, to turn from sin to him. God's story is patient, but God's story also ends decisively. There's no ambiguity in this parable. The ending is no gray area. It takes one course or another. Look at Jesus back in Matthew 13 as Jesus finishes the explanation of the parable beginning in verse 40. He says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they'll gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear indeed. There are only two endings to the story. They are certain and decisive. The unrepentant wicked will surely be punished. The righteous will shine forever in the kingdom of their father. Right now, you can't always tell them apart. The field, Jesus says, is the world, and the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one grow up together. And we would understand if, as we saw in 2 Peter 2, the sons of the evil one scoff and think there will be no judgment. Things go on as they've always gone on. No, 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 Jesus says. The same is illustrated further down in another parable. Look down in verse 47. It says again, the kingdom of heaven's like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Uh, the fishing in that day was typically done with a large net. It'd be spread out between a couple of boats, and it would be uh, weights down at the bottom tied to the boats on the top, creating this big sort of field of netting. And they would row or sail or whatever they needed to do in a certain direction, typically toward the shore. And they're just scooping up and dredging everything that's bigger than the holes in the net. They'd get good fish, they'd get bad fish, they'd get seaweed, they'd get trash, they'd just get whatever was there. 
and they drag it all up toward the shore and pull it up and then they just sort through which ones do we keep, which ones do we pitch. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is kind of like that. Verse 49, so it'll be at the end of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's story ends decisively. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no other place for, you know, not too great, but not too bad for the people who are unsure and still on the fence. God's patient. He gives time. But in the end, there is a certain and decisive judgment. Like Yuval Harari, the historian we talked about earlier, we could, we could tell ourselves that we're going to write our own story, give ourselves our own meaning, but it would be a fiction. This is the story we're in. You don't have to acknowledge it to be in the story. We just are. It's God's world. We're his creatures. God's story starts humbly. It moves slowly. It waits patiently. It ends decisively. And this, this means some things for us. We consider a few of them here. First of all, because God's story starts humbly and moves slowly, we, we should be content with humble and lowly in our own lives. We should be content and humble. The Son of Man himself didn't come in great grandeur, glory, and power. He came humbly, gently. You remember the story Jesus tells? Not a story Jesus tells. You remember the story of Jesus sitting outside the temple watching people come in. And religious leaders, they come filing in and they bring their big monetary donations and they make every effort to make sure everyone sees, you know, they get those big giant checks that they give the winners on game shows. They bring their giant check in and they wave it around and stuff it in or they take all their coins and rattle them in the jar so everyone can hear and Jesus is not impressed. And then, and then a very poor woman with two pennies comes in and tosses just and it's like Jesus jumps up and says, now that, that's great. Because, you see, she, she gave everything she had, all she had to live on. That's a gift I'm impressed with. And everyone else looks at that and says, it's not impressive. It's two pennies. God can't do anything with two pennies. Jesus says, no, that's what I'm looking for. Humble and lowly. For many of us, most of us, our work and labor in the kingdom will often feel humble and lowly. We're helping first and second grade sparkies on Wednesday night say their memory verses. We're advancing slides out of sight of everyone else in the church during a service. We're coming and clean the building during the week that nobody sees and nobody gives any credit for. A lot of our labors are humble and lowly. And God loves those and delights in those and rewards those. God's story starts humbly. It moves slowly. 
we should be very content and find great joy in the humble and lowly work that God rewards forever. Secondly, because God's story waits patiently, we should wait patiently with our expectations. We are impatient people. We want what we want, and we want it right now. And the remarkable thing is that we are blessed with an unparalleled ability to get what we want right away. This week, I bought a, a 10 volumes, 10 thick volumes of a theological dictionary. I bought it for my Bible study software. I was sitting at my table in a McDonald's. I decided I wanted it. I clicked a few buttons, and within seconds, 5,000 pages of valuable theological tools are on my computer screen. That's amazing. What a world we live in. But sometimes I click on something, and this little thing comes up and does this, and I'm infuriated, like the world has robbed me, right? Why do we have, I shouldn't have to wait. I just bought 5,000 pages. I shouldn't have to wait 45 whole seconds for that. We can be, I can be so impatient. We'd love to see things change in this world, and, and often we should. We'd love to see evil eradicated in the world. There's so many injustices, so much pain, so much suffering, and we'd love to see it taken care of right now. And, and we should work and labor to alleviate as much pain and suffering and misery in the world as we can. But, but often it takes time. And we should be patient with our expectations, seeing evil eradicated in the world or, or in our relationships. Oh, so many relationships are so hard. There's so much pain, so much disappointment, so much frustration, so much heartache in so many relationships. And we want to see them fixed, and we should, and we should labor and pray to that end. But, oh, we ought to be patient. God is working, but not on our time frame. In his wisdom and in his time, someday all the evil and suffering relationships will be done too. And we wait and pray patiently. Of course, the place we must and ought most and will long to see evil eradicated is in our own hearts, in our own lives. And we get impatient with ourselves, and it leads to discouragement and frustration, and sometimes I'm going to throw in the towel, I'm going to give up. Why even try anymore? I've been working at this for years. Look how old I am, and look how much I still struggle. But we should be patient with that too. Not dismissive, not complacent, but patiently taking the next step forward that God has for us. We're gonna, in a couple weeks, we'll begin a new series in 2 Peter 1 and consider how, in some very specific and practical ways, we can work on taking the next step, even this year, in our relationship with God. God is graciously giving us and the people around us the time and space to find his life and salvation. So we should expect in the meantime our joy to be mixed with sorrow, our pleasures to be mixed with pain. We don't yet live in the fullness of God's kingdom. It is certainly coming in fullness. Christ has come. He's purchased it on the cross. His salvation, his kingdom is coming with great certainty for all who've turned from their sin and trusted in him. There can be no doubt. But in the meantime, we expect that God is going to use even our impatience and our frustrations and our difficulties to prepare us and make us long for 
the coming of his kingdom and the end of his story in fullness. Third and finally, because God's story ends decisively, we shouldn't put off even one more day turning to him. We shouldn't put it off even for one more day. This chapter of God's story, where he waits patiently for sinners to turn to him, could end any time. It's already lasted way longer than his disciples and the earliest apostles thought. They wondered, could it be any time 1,900 years ago? And yet his patience has proven remarkable and long-lived. But it's not forever. So we shouldn't put off even one more day turning to him. For some of us, the first time. For some of us, for the very first time, today should be the day that we turn from our sins in repentance and we trust in Christ, give our lives and hearts completely to him. Some of us need to do that for the very first time. But many of us need to renew a commitment that we've made a long time ago. Renew it earnestly and wholeheartedly. Turning to Christ with all our hearts, giving our entire lives and hopes and futures, seeing the rest of our story written and tied into his story that is, that is passing with certainty, unfailingly, toward a decisive end. Oh, we call it grant that each of us finds ourselves on that day children of the kingdom, children of light who will shine forever in his kingdom and in his glory. I don't put off turning to him one more day. Father, I pray that you'd help us. As we finish 2019 and we look ahead to 2020, we, we want to, to move forward in, in patience but not complacence. We don't want to be complacent and, and unconcerned about our standing with you. And at the same time, we don't want to be impatient and demand that everything be fixed and everything be resolved right now. We know that you're using even the difficulties and troubles in our lives and in our relationships and in the world around us to make us long for you and delight in you and put our rest and trust in you. And so I pray that you would use all those things toward that end. Father, I pray this morning, and I know there are people here who need to turn to Jesus wholeheartedly today for the first time. Not just dabbling in Jesus, dabbling in church, but, but really, truly, wholeheartedly committing themselves. Jesus is going to be my king. I'm going to step off the throne. I'm going to put down the pen. I'm going to stop trying to draft my own story. And I want to step into his story as his child trusting in Jesus, his death and resurrection for me. Lord, I pray that every person here this morning that needs to do that would. They wouldn't leave here without doing it. Put all their hope in Christ. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that this next year would be a year of great earnestness and, and seriousness and resolve to move forward in and with Christ. Empowered by the, the sure hope of your coming kingdom in glory and power and righteousness. Empowered by the love you've displayed for us in your son Jesus Christ on the cross and in drawing us to him and to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would move forward with eagerness and earnestness and intentionality and resolve. Father, I thank you that you were patient. 
that you are loving and gracious and kind. We, we have already here received more grace from you than we deserve. You've been exceedingly kind. Lord, I pray that we would not only exalt and rest and delight in your grace, I pray that we'd share it. I pray we'd extend it to others in our relationships. I pray that we would speak the truth of it to those who don't yet know. Thank you for this church. I pray that we would be a church captivated by the glory and goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Let me send you out with these words of benediction from Jude 24 and 25. And after we close, if you're able to stick around and help us take some chairs down and set up tables, that'd be great. Jude 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.